Welcome to the Rad Awakenings Podcast. I'm Kay He. When was the last time you became aware of something deep, provocative, and uncomfortable? In these moments, we level up in our work, our creativity, and most importantly, in our own heads. Each episode, our guests will describe their Rad Awakenings. The conversations are real, raw, and will share in both struggle and joy. Before we kick off today's episode, I wanted to share a new offering for our RAD community. One of the most common questions I get is, Kay, I've read the newsletters, blog, and listened to the podcast religiously. I'm ready to start the process of self-discovery, but I can't do this on my own. Rest assured, we got you, and we've added a new page on our website featuring a curated group of teachers and coaches. Whether you're stuck, committed to inquiry but don't know where to begin, or just need help getting out of your own way, these coaches would all be great partners and are trusted members of the community. To learn more about our RAD coaches, visit rad.family slash coaching. Again, that's rad.family slash coaching. See you soon. Today's guest is my friend, Lindsay Beck. Lindsay was a healthy 22-year-old who had just finished running a marathon when she noticed a small sore on the tip of her tongue. She dismissed the doctor's message to bring someone to the appointment with her and then got her diagnosis, tongue cancer. This cancer typically affects older men who have smoked or chewed tobacco for most of their lives. And for Lindsay, the typical procedure would involve removing her tongue and then her writing on a whiteboard for the rest of her life. But as a single 22-year-old who had dreams of falling in love and starting a family, this was not even an option worth considering. And as she learned more about the treatment options, she realized that chemo would have a 90% sterilization rate, a fact that doctors were not required to share, and so thousands of people were getting sterilized without even knowing it. Lindsay wrote the business plan for Fertile Hope during her recovery, giving herself 10 years to fix this problem. The last sentence read, if we are successful, the market will no longer sustain us as an independent organization. And she succeeded in that goal with one year to spare. After that, how do you come up with your second act? This caused Lindsay a lot of angst and she realized that the nonprofit fundraising model was completely broken and co-founded NPX. As a total outsider to the finance industry, she created a new type of security. Yes, a new security that brings together donors, investors, and nonprofits in a transparent way. Now that's a second act. Alongside this, Lindsay and her husband are both entrepreneurs and have four young kids. And we talk about prioritization, setting boundaries, and an underrated aspect of entrepreneurship, schedule flexibility. And I should point out for full disclosure, I'm an investor in NPX. Please enjoy my conversation with Lindsay Beck. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Rad Awakenings podcast. Today's guest is Lindsay Beck. How's it going, Lindsay? Great. Thrilled to be here. Tell us a little bit about where you're from and where you grew up. Sure. I grew up in the Bay Area in California, but I would say like a vanilla middle class suburban town. <laughs> and you, where did you go to college? I went to undergrad at the University of Colorado in Boulder and then did business school at Wharton in San Francisco. What were you like as a teenager in Northern California? <laughs> wow, I haven't thought about that in a long time. I feel like I was typical middle-class teenager. I don't know. I was an athlete. I was a student. I was the oldest in my family. And so the typical like, type A, driven, good grades, but not because anyone forced me to be, just I thought that's what you're supposed to do. And so that's what I did. And just sort of thought, here's the plan. Like, you do well, you go to college, you get a job, you get married, you start a family. That's success. <laughs> oh, yeah. Did your parents guide you to different types of careers or work? Not at all. My parents are divorced and on very different paths. And so I always loved being able to see into different worlds, regardless of what it was, but even with careers. And in retrospect, I realized I've kind of taken pieces from their lives and their careers that I liked and made them my own. So for example, my dad is an entrepreneur and his career has been like wild booms and busts. And so I, I lived through like the high highs and then really low lows, whereas my mom and, and stepdad have been more steady and traditional and provided just sort of like 
a linear, steady, comfortable, secure path, which as a child felt good. It's, it's interesting now to reflect back and see like which aspects of that I've tried to take on or, or that I crave. You know, if I'm in more of like the roller coaster ride of an entrepreneur, then I start craving <laughs> the, <laughs> the structure and the linear path. That would just make you human and and just so a believer of the, that the grass is always greener. Yes, exactly. And so you said you went to Boulder undergrad. Yes, yes. When you graduated, what um what was your first job out of college? Oh my gosh, it's so funny. My first job out of college was back in San Francisco, and I worked at Otis Elevator Company. Wow. <laughs> That is some OG, like, that's like the granddaddy of industrial American companies. Yes, it it was really funny. And I took the job because they offered me, like, the highest salary of any job. And I wanted to go in business. And all of my friends were sort of taking jobs as, like, assistants or analysts or a super junior in title and responsibility. And this job, they were willing to give me like everything, like drop everything on my lap and put me through tons of training. And I loved it. I spent a year (laughs) learning as much as I could and doing as much as I could from a business standpoint. And it just so happened that the product was elevators and escalators, which still makes me laugh. (laughs) There's probably a good pun in there somewhere about, you know, like getting in on the ground floor. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and then you you like made your way to New York earlier in your career. Is that right? Yeah. So my journey was I worked at Otis for a year, year and a half after college, and then was diagnosed with cancer, and that put me on a different pathway. And after going through all of those treatments, I was it was the timing was also in San Francisco. It became the dot com boom, the first one in the late nineties. And so it felt really hard post-cancer to go back to sort of a stodgy company where I felt like I had learned everything I wanted to when all of my friends, again, were working at really cool startups. And like it felt like the age of the internet was being born in the city that I was living in. And it, it felt like a miss not to be a part of that. And so I left Otis and went to a startup and worked at a startup for a year and a half and it was the typical boom and bust like raise a hundred million dollars and then a year and a half later go bankrupt and in between you know from writing the business plan and and going to sand hill road to pitch it and literally being so junior but neat you know where they would say okay you're coming sit at the table and don't say a word we just need to look bigger than we are (laughs) so we need everyone to then you know having a hundred million dollars and then and then going bankrupt and so Once that happened, the boom turned into a bust. And San Francisco was a really sad place to be. Like, the energy was low. And it just wasn't what it had been, you know, in the the boom. And I was diagnosed with cancer again at that time. And after that, like, once I had been sick in San Francisco twice and with the whole city kind of in a slump, I was like, get me out of here. Wow. (laughs) And so I went to New York and just loved that you could be anyone you wanted to be. The energy was just high, you know, it was fast and everything was moving and people were so interesting and there were so many different career paths in a way that in San Francisco, it had felt like everyone was doing one thing and that one thing went away and then there was nothing. And New York felt just alive. Wow. And so this is like a... Uh, what four year time period or so that you said you were diagnosed with cancer twice? Yes, I was diagnosed twice within two years. But yeah, can you talk a little bit about the initial diagnosis? Like, how old were you? Was it walk us through that time? Sure, I was twenty two, and I was diagnosed the day after running a marathon. No way. Yeah. So I was like your typical San Francisco post-college, eat organic from the farmer's market. Went to Boulder. Run, Yeah, went to Boulder, run every day after work with friends. You know, I thought I was the healthiest I had ever been, literally, you know, accomplishing my first marathon. Did you live in the marina? Yep, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, all, the whole nine yards, you can picture it. And then... 
you know, spent my weekends hiking in the Marin Headlands or skiing in Tahoe, right? I was just always outside, healthy, active, non-smoker, marathon runner. And I guess I should say the week before the marathon, I went to the doctor because there was a canker sore on my tongue that was bothering me. It was like a little sore that wouldn't go away. It was just like persistent, but almost like, you know, if you eat something spicy or something, your tongue kind of hurts, like a little dot, but it just wouldn't go away. And it was rubbing against one of my back teeth. And so I went to the doctor and they were like, eh, I'm sure it's nothing. And I didn't want any medications because I was about to run my marathon. And they were like, oh, we'll run a couple of tests. You know, we'll take a sample. We'll run a couple of tests and then come back on Monday and we'll figure out a plan because then, you know, we might need to give you a steroid or something like that that you don't want to take before your marathon. So I was like, okay. And that's all. It was sort of, we'll run a few tests. And when I went in, I guess on Monday morning, they called and said, you should bring someone with your with you to your appointment. And most people would know, like, that's a bad sign. But I was 22. And I thought, I'm not bringing someone with me for a canker sore. So I went in solo and they were like, you have cancer in your mouth. <laughs> I was like, wait, huh? I didn't know we were testing for cancer. <laughs> I didn't know cancer was possible in your mouth. I mean, it was it was quite a shock. But there I was, a young adult with tongue cancer. Wow. I don't think I've ever heard of tongue cancer. Is it in the realm of cancers? Is it pretty uncommon? It's super rare, and it's most common in old men who have smoked, chewed tobacco, or drank their whole life. And so, like, none of those boxes, check, you know, for me. <laughs> so, yeah, so it was, well, as in the theme of this podcast, like, an awakening for me of, like, wow, okay. Not a rad one, though, like, probably, <laughs> like, a rude one. <laughs> yes, although the silver linings for the rest of my life have been quite rad, so... Mm. And so what did that mean in terms of treatment and working and all that kind of logistical stuff? Yeah. So I didn't realize it at the time, but I had an extraordinary doctor for me. And my doctor who diagnosed me was Dr. Nancy Snyderman, who many people have seen like on the Today Show or Good Morning America. She's sort of now a TV doctor, but she is a real doctor and she is who diagnosed me. I had no idea who she was. And she's very radical in how understated, but radical in how she treats people. And so when she diagnosed me, she said, listen, the normal protocol with tongue cancer is to remove your tongue, but you're 22 and that's obviously not going to work for you. So we can do things different. And so I'm going to suggest this other protocol where we're going to do radiation first to shrink the tumor and avoid surgery if we can. So that if you don't have to have your tongue removed, you don't have to. And I can imagine to anyone listening, like, duh, wouldn't everyone want that? <laughs> like, that's a total no-brainer. But it was so unconventional in medicine at the time, I didn't even realize it. But so when she sat me down, she started with the person first and with convention last and like, okay, how, what are your life goals and how do we get you there despite this? And so that then was like my approach to, to everything with cancer and, and beyond. And so honestly, she was just like, this is a kick in the pants. We'll get through it. Here's a notebook. Here's a pencil. Every day, I want you to write down all of your questions. Here's my cell phone number. Call me every night and I'll answer them. And we just got through it. And so in a way, I wasn't as scared as maybe I should have been or I wasn't I, I don't know it's, it's really interesting like she just sort of led the way and led it in such an amazing way that was focused on me that I didn't even realize and it, now she when she talks about my diagnosis she will say like oh my gosh like I had this 22 year old girl in my office she had this deadly diagnosis the survival rates were dismal there was no chance she was going to live but like none of that was given to me. She did not dump any of that on me. And instead, just like we were a team and we warriored through. And I, I'll say that at the time, 
at the same hospital, there were four people under the age of 30 with the same type of cancer. And they all did the traditional protocol, and I did this radical one to preserve my quality of life. And I am the only one alive today. Wow. Did you know, like, the prop, you know, this, the probabilities? You presumably had a choice between traditional and radical. Like, how do you make those types of decisions, period, but as a 22 year old? Yeah, I mean, she said a few things like, don't go home and Google this or, or don't go home and go on WebMD. I don't even know that Google existed, but she was like, don't go home and look this up because every statistic is about an 85-year-old man who smoked his whole life. So like the statistics don't apply to you. So in a way, that was liberating. So I didn't even go there. And then I feel like that first time around, I just trusted her. And it, it, it sounds silly, but like... It was just common sense. It was like, okay, do you want to go to someone else who will remove your tongue? And like, you can literally write on a whiteboard the rest of your life. Like you will have no way to talk or kiss or, you know, I was like single. I was asking her questions like, I need to be able to like kiss and get married and fall in love. Like (laughs) those were my concerns, right? And so when she said, well, you can go somewhere else and we can remove your tongue, which I'm like, well, there's no... Like, I can't even envision life without being able to speak. Or there's this other approach, and we're going to minimize any amount of, like, removing your tongue. And it just was common. I was like, duh, of course. And it didn't even occur to me that that was radical. Like, it seemed obvious, and, like, it should be the norm. But that's also where ignorance is bliss. I would say the second time around, when it came back and spread... I was then worried, like, oh, no, did I make the wrong choice the first time? Why was I treated at the small hospital instead of a major cancer center? And so I did go and, like, get second opinions and go see the world's experts. And a lot of them poo-pooed the treatments that I had had in the past and said that's why it came back. But then I ultimately went back to her again. And, like, the, the plan that her and I and the, and the whole team mapped out again, was just more practical from a quality of life standpoint. This will sound funny, but when you have a major diagnosis like that, everyone is focused on the temporary. Like when someone's diagnosed with cancer, everyone's like, oh my gosh, they're going to lose their hair. They're going to be nauseous. They're going to be throwing up. They're, how can I deliver dinner tonight? Right? Everyone's worried about the immediate and the, the temporary. And Nancy and I were focused on the permanent and the long term. And that allowed us to operate different. It was just a different framework for which to evaluate everything. And I found that it ultimately worked for me. But like when I went to the big cancer hospitals, they were they would want to do radical surgeries. And I, I remember saying to a doctor, like, you could remove my head and that would solve the problem, right? Like we would get rid of the cancer. But, like, but you said that to work. the doctor? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And, like, you would have your success rates, you know, you cured this patient, but, like, I can't live without my head. So, and, and that was just, like, a, a gross analogy of, like, what was happening. But it was sort of, like, these, like, let's think about the practical options. And I think I, I don't know, I felt, and people often disagree with me on this, but I was of the mindset that, like, if I can't live the life I wanted and the life I imagined, and if you're going to severely handicap me, I'm out. Like, I'll choose death. Like, I don't want it that bad. And that was also, the doctors would always say, like, everyone chooses life. And I'm like, mm, not at that cost. I'm out. And again, Nancy wouldn't let me die, you know? She was like, we're not choosing death here. But there, there is some middle ground. You know, it doesn't have to be one or the other. Wow. The parallels to, you know, things that you and I have talked about and me who has not had like one, like the most adversity I had is like early hair loss. <laughs> but I, I feel that with that, that same kind of like, I don't want to call it trade off paradigm, whatever you want to phrase you want to use, where with like hospice care, which really like change the way that 
I like thought about death. Yes. Which was like, keep me alive at all cost instead of make me enjoy, let me enjoy what I have left. And again, it's not, it's apples to pears, <laughs> but there is this, this element. And, and you, I mean, you say it so like bluntly, but it makes a lot of sense. I wonder how, like, how do you reflect that thinking to like the people around you who care about, you know, family and parents who might not, did they believe that that was the right lens to, to examine the diagnoses? The, <laughs> I, I definitely like, drive my loved ones crazy with that type of thinking. And it's often really hard to get them on board, but ultimately they get there. And so, I mean, even today, you know, I, I just feel like I have a different lens and I, I do look at those trade-offs or I do look at those sort of like how to minimize regret over time and less about what do I want today, but always looking at like the temporary versus the permanent versus, you know, short-term versus long-term, all of that. And my, I've learned because of that experience, I think about things differently and I sometimes forget that everyone else hasn't had the same Yeah, <laughs> I was about to say like, we're friends, so I could say like, no shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so sometimes I forget like, oh yeah, I need to walk them through my thinking or walk them through my feelings and, and also respect that we may agree to disagree. But when it's something about me and my body, you know, I have final say, so... So yeah, we were, you like, you had skipped us over to like, and then I moved to New York because San Francisco was <laughs> such a downer because the dot-com crashed and it was such a sad city to be in. But yeah, tell us about maybe just like briefly, like the recovery and then kind of like getting back on, on your feet and, and pardon my, if, I, if that's not even like the right way to ask the question, I'm, it's more from a place of, of ignorance. Oh no, it's fine. So the first time around, I only had radiation. And so like the recovery was pretty, it was like four to six months of hell. And then it was like back to normal, but with a whole new perspective on life. And then the second time around, I ended up having surgery and I had chemo and I had radiation. And that's sort of where another awakening came that led into my journey in New York. So I'll spend a minute on it. But in the second time, I guess in my first diagnosis, one of my first questions to Nancy when she said I had this cancer, and as I said a minute ago, my mind went to like tongue cancer. Ah, how will I ever kiss? How will I fall in love? How will I get married? How will I have babies? Like that was my crazy train of thought. And so one of my first questions that first day was, Will can I have kids? Like, will if radiation is my course of treatment, can I have kids? And she said, Yes, radiation to your head and neck won't affect your fertility. If you were having chemo, that might be different, but you're not. So, like, you can have babies till the cows come home. That was her quote. And so then I, like, went about treatment. Well, then the second time around, then all of a sudden they raised the chemo flag, and I was like, whoa, hold on. <laughs> can I have kids? And my oncologist wasn't forthcoming with that information. I had to ask about it. And then ultimately when I asked, he said, oh, there's a 90% chance you'll be permanently sterile. So I'm 24 and single. I've had cancer twice and now I'm also going to be sterile. And I was like, no, <laughs> this is not going to work for my dating game, essentially. Which sounds silly, but again, I'm 24, right? Like That's where my mind was. And I asked a lot of questions. And again, for everyone at that time was focused on, oh, chemo, your hair is going to fall out. You'll be nauseous and you'll be whatever. And I was like, temporary, temporary, temporary. What is the one thing that is going to still be with me in 10 years that I'm going to be mad about? And that would be permanent sterilization. And so I found a way to freeze my eggs prior to starting chemo. And that was like... I think I was the second person at Stanford to freeze my eggs ever. Like egg freezing wasn't done. For this cancer or just in general? In general. I didn't, it was the second person ever <laughs> to wow. do it. Oh, so egg freezing is not that old? Yes. It's very new. Oh, very, I very didn't new. realize that. Yes. And so I, through that journey of freezing my eggs while managing cancer treatments, sort of saw this void in the market. And then I came to learn that 
90% of cancer patients were being sterilized without their knowledge and permission. Essentially, no one was telling anyone that that chemo was sterilizing. And so patients were finding out about it five or 10 years later once they had survived and they were then trying to become parents. How in the hell, like, how is that possible? <laughs> I know, right? I, so I thought, like, how in America today could we sterilize people without the their knowledge The most powerful nation in the world, like... <laughs> well, and beyond the human aspect, which in and of itself is huge, it was inconceivable to me because... Oftentimes, like where you bank your sperm or where you freeze your eggs is in the same hospital and is a revenue center. So they would actually make more money off me as a patient if they sent me to do that. So like as a human being, like the PR story, the legal aspect and the revenue line, it makes sense on all of those. And so the fact that it wasn't happening didn't make any sense to me. I'm not to get into it. it it's probably like weird insurance and litigation risk reasons why it's not brought up? No, it was just sort of the doctors would say, I feel super comfortable saying you have cancer. I'm an expert. Here's my arsenal to treat you. They didn't feel comfortable saying you also will be infertile. And that's all I know. I don't know that whole other world. And just out of that ignorance came was a barrier of, well, I am not opening up. I don't want to give a double blow and then not have a solution for the second one and look like an idiot in front of my patient who I'm trying to build confidence with. Wow. So it is that like siloed thinking where it's like, nope, that's not my domain. Like, Yep. Well, and yeah, we, we would have to say to the doctors, like, you don't know how to operate the MRI machine but you know where to send me when I need an MRI. And that became like, like foreshadowing here, like how we change things was because we had to get them comfortable with like the unknown. I was like, oh yeah, it's okay that I don't know that world. There are other people who do. I just need to make a referral. Oh my gosh. But so that's what led me to New York is I was fed up with San Francisco. I had worked at a dot com. And in that was like this fast and furious learning process where I helped write the business plan. And when I mean that, I got to like edit it, you know, (laughs) I was like the most junior person. I got to like go to FedEx. Can I just say, can I just pause you? Because this is what I love about you is that you just like switch on like on a dime, like this like rage that you had for the medical system of the United States to like, and I edited business plan in San Francisco. (laughs) (laughs) That's what makes you so spectacular. But sorry, keep going. Well, it all comes together. I worked at this dot com. It happened to be in the medical space. It was in the allergy and asthma arena where they were selling like air filters and whatever. So worked at this.com and, and helped like create a board of directors, a board of medical advisors, go to medical conferences, all of this stuff as a form of marketing. And at the.com, you got to see how you essentially raise a bunch of money and then spend it all and go bankrupt. And so once I had this experience with cancer and fertility, and I was really fired up, like this is a problem, this is unjust and it it was crazy to me that like the solution exists this isn't like oh how do we find a cure for cancer this was like patients are being sterilized the solution exists and it exists in the same hospital like we have to fix this and so in between chemo treatments and radiation treatments I started writing the business plan like I got out the business plan from the dot-com I had just worked at and started writing it for this and then determined, oh, it should be a nonprofit and we should help cancer patients with infertility. And we have two goals. One is that every patient should be informed, right? Like you shouldn't be sterilized without your knowledge and permission. And then two, that insurance should cover these treatments. And just wrote the business plan to say like, okay, let's do that. Let's solve this. And I wanted to solve the problem and put the organization out of business in 10 years or less. I saw like existing into perpetuity as failure. And so I wrote the business plan and then moved to New York. And don't ask me why I would think like go live somewhere where you know nobody to try and start a company and, and raise money and, and do all of that. But that's sort of what led me there. Wow. So two goals. And if this company still exists in 10 years, we've failed in our mission. Yeah. 
did you have like a co-founder or you just like sitting in the room by yourself writing this up by myself did you beat the 10-year goal Yes, we solved the problems in nine years. Nine years. <laughs> so right under, yes, it is now the standard of care to inform all patients of their infertility risks. And if a doctor doesn't do that, it's malpractice. It's now you could sue for that. It's on the books. And then we worked with most major insurers and privately insured companies to add this benefit to their plans. It's not perfect and nothing is in medicine. You know, there are still some old school doctors that won't talk about it or some insurance plans that don't address it. But we came in with those two goals. And then the last line of the business plan said that if we are successful, the market will no longer sustain us as an independent organization. And we should go in-house at a bigger cancer shop like Livestrong at the time. It was the biggest brand in cancer. And in 2009, Livestrong acquired Brutal Hope. So the last line of the business plan came true. Wow. <laughs> was this for throat cancer or for any chemo? Any cancer. So this is like impacts hundreds of thousands of people per year? Yes. Yes. Holy shit. <laughs> I thought I, I just from our prior conversation, I thought it was just like the kind of cancer that you had had. I didn't realize it was all chemo. Yeah. So chemotherapy is systemic. And so it goes in and blasts your body and it depends on the type. So not all chemotherapies affect fertility, but they have different rankings on how toxic they are. Then radiation, if you get radiated, radiation is like an x-ray, like a laser beam. So if the laser is pointed at your reproductive organs, then it is also sterilizing. So it wasn't for me because it was pointed at my head. But if it was pointed at my abdomen, it would be sterilizing. And then obviously some surgeries, like if you have surgery for ovarian cancer, then that's sterilizing as well. So all three have the potential to cause infertility. And it's anyone diagnosed in their reproductive years, which we used to define as like 45 and under. So it also affects pediatrics, so little kids have that risk, and they have fewer options, obviously. So, yeah, it affects a lot of people every year. And now now it's, like, so built into the system. We used to always say, like, we just want it on the checklist. When you get diagnosed and they refer you to all these different places, whether it's to get an MRI or where to buy a wig or, you know, all the different things that they do, we wanted this on the checklist. And now it is. And when you talk to people, if I ask, like, oh, did they bring up fertility? They'll say, of course. <laughs> Not even realizing that, you know, a handful of years ago, that wasn't the case. So it's become fully institutionalized, which is what makes me so proud, is that I no longer have to spend any time on it. And an organization isn't needed for it anymore. It's become really baked into both the cancer world and the fertility world have like changed the way they practice medicine and have just folded this in to make it totally normal, totally standard practice. For our listeners, Lindsay and I have been friends for many years now. And so I've heard this story and not like in one on one fell swoop, but I'm like, my jaw is like, like, cause I've learned so many new things, but mostly I just want to like, I just want to say they need to make a, like a statue of you or something. <laughs> No, they don't. You need to have, uh, there needs to be a Lindsay, and you're too humble to even consider that, but but I, I want to go like crowdfund it and put a statue of you outside of Sloan Kettering or something of that sort. But I'm just in awe of that. I'm in awe because on this podcast, as you know, we interview like tremendous individuals who have accomplished like really insane things and really insane points in their lives. But I got to say that this, like listening to this, I'm like, whoa, this is by far the most impactful and the one that like gets me so amped. So yeah, so just thank you. And, and as a friend, like I say, like, I'm just like so, so proud of you. Like I already, I know, I knew this about you, but I'm still like, like oozing with pride hearing you like share it with all of us. <laughs> well, thank you. And I think for me, it's like there is no statue needed. What's the best to me is when I hear randomly from people, you know, that they overcame cancer and then they have a baby. 
and they tell me the story of how they banked their sperm or how they were approved for our financial assistance program that still even exists today and, you know, how their story unfolded and then how now they have this miracle baby and they have no idea that I played a role in any of it. And to me, that is like the ultimate success, the ultimate impact. And it's like in those babies, you know, that wouldn't have otherwise been born. And I should say, I now have four kids. Yes, I, you, you scooped babies. me. <laughs> you scooped me because I was going to say, so like we're, we're at a, a juncture. Do we go to like your next thing or to like, I don't know, just like tell us about the, like how was your dating life? And, you know, because you were really preoccupied with that. <laughs> <laughs> how was your dating life in, in New York going through all this? Oh my gosh. Well, I made a bad decision in doing, starting Fertile Hope, and being very public about my story as it relates to dating because for all the reasons that I was worried about having all these side effects I was then like putting them on billboards right so I was dating in New York went on a date with my now husband and said like oh tomorrow like I can go out tonight but I want it to be an early night I didn't want him to think I didn't like him but I need to call it call it an early night because the next morning I was going to be on Good Morning America with Nancy Snyderman talking about this issue. And so he was like, no problem. Cool, right? Like, oh, I'm going on a date with this girl who's starting a company and she's, her company is going to be featured on Good Morning America tomorrow. Awesome. So the next, but he doesn't know what my company is. He doesn't know I've had cancer. He knows nothing. Oh, wow. So this is like first, second date type stuff. Yeah, first date. The next morning he is emailing me from a big bank and he's like, I'm on the trading floor and we have every TV turned on to Good Morning America. And I told all the guys on the trading floor that this cute girl I went on a date with last night, her company is being featured. And he has no idea that they're about to say like, she had cancer, she might be sterile, she froze her eggs. Like he has no idea they're gonna like tell my whole medical story. And so I quickly was like, please turn off the TVs. <laughs> Do not, you cannot watch it on the trading floor. And I said, you know, we'll get to this, but the company I'm starting has to do with my own medical history. I've had cancer, whatever. And anyway, he was like, oh, and he was totally fine with it but, and didn't watch it on the trading floor. But it didn't make for like the best dating situation to be running around saying like, I'm sterile and <laughs> I... I had cancer twice and they removed part of my tongue and, you know, all of those things. Wow. Well, the story ends well because he's your husband and and four beautiful kids later. And so what what are the ages of your kids? They are, I always have to pause. (laughs) So many of them. Yes, so many of them. Right now, they are 11, 9, 6, and 3. Two boys and two girls. And super cute. So how does one have a second act after they're erecting statues of you or should be? Like walk us through the thinking. Like like I literally don't know what one does next after that. It's really helpful to hear you say it and frame it that way because when it was happening live, it was jarring and a lot of people didn't understand why I was so lost. And so... I had sort of succeeded myself out of a job and had gone from the highest of highs, right, where you're winning Lifetime Achievement Awards on stage with people who are 80, literally. Here I am again, like where my peers are much older and everyone who I could relate to was retiring and their next act was like to sail into the sunset and I was mid-30s wondering like, well, what do I do next? And here I've, I've had this amazing passion-driven, high-impact career and, like, run as an entrepreneur with a successful exit, right? Like, like my company was acquired, you know, even though it was acquired for a dollar. But, you know, it's that. Like, it was this amazing run. And then, well, then what? And then what? In, In two ways. Like, one, I didn't have a golden parachute. Like, people would be like, you should take a year or two off and travel the world. And I didn't sell my company for millions of dollars, right? So I didn't have that freedom or flexibility. And then, two, I was I was sort of tired. Like I had been giving 
for so long. And, and I was trying to figure out, well, what everyone would say, oh, you should run this nonprofit or you should go into education or, and everything felt uninteresting. Everything felt daunting, like nothing felt right. And it, it felt, not, I felt almost numb. Like, will I ever care about anything as much as I cared about this? And if not, how will I get up and like go to work every day? And so I decided for some crazy reason that the best thing to do would be to go to business school and learn. Like I wanted to go for two years and like, quote unquote, sit back and relax and, and learn and absorb and be inspired and try on different things and learn new things, but learn them like with someone else leading the syllabus and leading me through the journey as opposed to me having to lead the journey. And at its core, when I was trying to decide like, well, where should I go to business school and what do I want to study? When I looked back at my tenure at Fertile Hope, I was most frustrated by the inefficient way that nonprofits have to fundraise. So I felt like we were killing it at Fertile Hope. We were doing such a good job. We were a small, high-impact nonprofit And the more successful we were, the harder it was to raise money. And that inverse relationship between performance and capital, access to capital, made no sense to me. And meanwhile, my husband, as I mentioned, is in finance, and I was just jealous of what he had. And I would say, like, I want the Bloomberg of nonprofits. And I want the NASDAQ of nonprofits. Like, why are there 700 breast cancer organizations in the U.S. And why do we have no data on any of them to say like who's doing what and who does it better, faster, cheaper? Who's moving the needle? And so I was like, I want to go study finance and see what we could glean from the for-profit capital markets and apply to the nonprofit world to fix this. Like this is an opaque, inefficient system. And it's a trillion dollar market that everyone is just sort of like, huh, oh, it's okay. Like, we don't know if it works or if it doesn't or not, but like, I felt really good donating. And so how could we change that? And so I decided to go to business school and that that could help be my transition. And I, and I could learn finance and then potentially craft a second act. <laughs> or, and I went into it kind of eyes wide open of like, could I try on a bunch of different things? So for example, everyone would say to me, and you'll laugh because you've heard me say this, like, oh, you should go work at Genentech. Like, it's big pharma in the Bay Area. All they want to do is change physician behavior. Like, you change physician behavior in the U.S. That's their goal every day. Go work for them. And so business school allowed me to, like, do a consulting project for them for six weeks and then see, did I like it? Did I not? You know, really see behind the curtain, try on a bunch of different things and see what lit me up. And for a long time, nothing lit me up. And then I start to find my way again. And I would say, I'm still building the second act. <laughs> it's a work in progress always. And so how did it culminate into what NPX is today? And, and tell us about what it is today. Sure. So it culminated in I guess it got to a place where I was crystal clear on the status quo is broken and it took time to validate that, right? It's one almost like with my egg freezing experience. It's one thing to say like, wow, I experienced this problem. But then I had to ask, do other people experience that? And is this a bigger problem or is this just like I slipped through the cracks? And so business school allowed me to validate the problem that yes, this, this is an opaque market. And then to look at well, who are all the smart people already thinking about it and what are they doing and can I join them? And then three, or do is there a novel solution? How, can I come up with a new fix to this that no one else is has thought of or is working on? And so business school gave me the time and space to validate the problem and then kind of figure out a solution. And so I came out of it with a really clear vision of wanting to transform the way impact is financed in the nonprofit sector. And then also while business school was able to develop a new financial product, a new way to bring together donors, investors, and nonprofits to fund impact. 
And that led to the creation and sort of took all of that, this academic journey and was able to put it over into an entrepreneurial journey. And for the last few years have then been trying to take that vision and take that product and bring it to life and, you know, introduce the first ever, you know, version of that product in the real world where we, it's one thing to invent something on paper and it's another you know, to find the product market fit and make it work in the real world. And so that's what we're doing with NPX. So to put some context around that, you created a new type of security to fund for nonprofits to fund themselves. Is that the right paraphrase? Yeah, we created a financial product that one of the first ever that allows you to invest in a nonprofit and earn a financial return based on impact. And so... For the super wonky finance people, it's a debt security. And so it allows the, a nonprofit to issue debt and then repay that debt over time with performance-based donations. And so it brings sort of everyone together oriented around impact to fund things in a new performance-driven way. And so the initial pain point that you had described was the opacity of the non- nonprofit funding landscape, and in that opacity, the lack of metrics for accountability or success? Yeah, you essentially, no one knows what's working and what's not, and so you can't fund accordingly. If you don't know what's working, then you can't fund the winners and stop funding the losers, right? And I guess a way to bring that to bear is that the top five nonprofits in 1970 are still the top five nonprofits today in the U.S. And if you compare that with the S&P 500, it's quite different, right? In 1970, it was like Bethlehem Steel on the S&P 500 and like Singer Sewing Machine. And now it's, it's Google, right? Um, and Amazon. And we haven't, and that's because we fund its survival of the fittest and the money follows performance. And in the nonprofit world, you don't have that. You do not have capital linked with performance. And so this product does that with the goal of explicitly linking money with impact and then publicly reporting that data over time so that you know what works and what doesn't and that the money moves accordingly. What's it like to enter the world of financial products (laughs) Is it fair to call you a true outsider? Absolutely, yes. I guess like your husband works, <laughs> so like you have like a little taste of it. But but what is it like as someone who, I mean, you probably didn't really think a ton about finance and and all that till your MBA, like finance in in the financial markets sense. Yeah, I feel it's it's hard. I'm I'm definitely an outsider. I'm definitely difference, right? I don't have the the same profile or pedigree or LinkedIn profile that everyone else that I have to communicate with has. But I think that's where my journey with Fertile Hope also parallels this, where I, when I went in to start Fertile Hope, I wasn't a doctor. I didn't know, I hadn't gone to med school. I didn't know anything about the medical side. I didn't know hospital operations. I didn't know pharmaceutical companies. I didn't know how any of it worked, but I knew it was wrong to treat patients the way I was treated. Like you cannot sterilize someone without their knowledge and permission. And so I just had this resolve of like, I know the system is broken. And I saw that by not being bogged down with the the status quo, like I didn't know the status quo because it wasn't even allowed in the club that I was able to think about things differently and come up with solutions that blew people's mind but were really quite obvious because I was an outsider. So being an outsider like was an advantage there and people couldn't poke holes in, in some of my reasoning because I had been the patient. And so you could only fight me so much on something and then it was like, I win, I've experienced it and you haven't. And so in the... In the NPX world, I found similar parallels where I've tried to remember and hold on to that like my lack of knowledge or my needing to learn it all and ask questions and be naive and open and and 
and not knowing the status quo or the dogmas of the sector means I think about things differently. And I, I meld different things together in ways that people wouldn't be as obvious to other people because they're so used to doing it a certain way. And similarly, everyone in finance who wants to say like, oh, nonprofits don't want this. Nonprofits don't care. I, I go back to, I ran one. And it's broken. <laughs> and so it's very different than Fertile Hope, but those underlying parallels are there. And so in, in the down moments, when it's hard to be an outsider, I've definitely been able to rely on my first act to say, like, remember, you're feeling small, you're feeling dumb, you're feeling excluded. There's a lot of big egos and sharp elbows, and they won't let you in the club but remember that being out here and these differences are actually your core advantage. So stop like being mad that you're not in and start seeing what you can see differently because you're out. Yeah. Wow. Does it get exhausting to be an outsider, like asking millions of questions? <laughs> yes. <laughs> All of the course. time. Of course, yeah. I mean, the result, like, I mean, you're taking, uh, you took on, like, the insurance and medical industry, <laughs> and now, like, parts of the financial industry, like, you, you've, you've picked, like, the ones that are, are very motivated to keep outsiders out. Yes, yes. And, I mean, ignorance is bliss, right? And some of that, it's just, I'm so motivated by a broken status quo that I can't not be part of a solution, but I will say, you asked me with Fertile Hope if I did it all alone. And I did. And it was very lonely for a lot of reasons. It's lonely to be at the top. And so second time around, I have a co-founder. Katerina Schwab is my co-founder and co-CEO. And we have this beautiful partnership. And we are each other's yin and yang. And wouldn't do it alone again. <laughs> and so part of how I deal with even tolerating being an outsider now or as you said is is exhausting it's less exhausting because she's by my side and we have each other to to lean on like whose superpower is best in this moment you know yeah wow that's awesome so for four kids and i'm just gonna dive into one of like the many great stories and exchanges we've had over the years so, so obviously Lindsay's an entrepreneur for a second time around. Her husband is now an entrepreneur in financial services. They have four kids between the ages of what, 11 and three, I think you said. And then, you know, like that wasn't crazy enough. Lindsay told me how they completely stopped eating, like sh refined sugar, gluten, vegan, like all this stuff. Like is that, tell that story. Sure. So we, we, last summer, we realized that my son had a GI issue or a stomach issue that was really bringing him down. And we had tried a number of Western medicine approaches and nothing was working and nothing made sense. And I had sort of a moment like I did in my own medical odyssey of like, why are we trying to continue down the path of the status quo when it's not working? There needs to be something else. And so we saw alternative options and started working with this amazing nutritionist who said he need, he has a problem in his GI tract and the way to eliminate it is to go gluten-free, dairy-free, sugar-free. And you have to do it. They don't even cold have turkey. a name for that diet. Yeah. <laughs> no. And you have to be do it cold turkey and the whole family has to do it. And the whole family has to do it she said, because one, it will make the, your one son who has the issue not feel odd or excluded or different. You know, it's no fun to sit down at dinner and everyone else gets to eat the good food and he has to eat the bad food. But she said, too, as a mom, you can't cook double for every meal. So she was like, you just have to do it. Go like cold turkey, all of you do it. <laughs> and so we did. It just... So for, now it's February, and that was last July. And we, all six of us, have been gluten-free, dairy-free, sugar-free ever since. And my son's GI issue is totally resolved, and he's on the up and up. And I guess, I don't know what part of the story you want me to tell. There have been, like, high highs and, like, really low lows. It's not, it wasn't easy by any means, but we did it. 
Well, I guess that we have two kids. We eat whatever the fuck we want. <laughs> um, we're not particularly strict with them, and like we're barely staying afloat. <laughs> and and, uh, and my wife works part time as an artist. Um, you you should add. To, I'll add to the story that your husband also works night hours. <laughs> evening trading hours but i guess like what the the question is what do you tell entrepreneurs either men or women like pick or i mean let's start with women about managing coping thriving in in motherhood and entrepreneurship a lot of people ask me the trade-offs of entrepreneurship and motherhood and for me it's less of a trade-off and it's more entrepreneurship allows me to be the type of mom I want to be because I have complete control and flexibility. And so my secret sauce through all of this, like how did I go to business school when my third baby was six weeks old on my first day? Or how did I run for hope and build my family? Or how am I running MPX and and taking my family on a, a food journey and, you know, doing all this. And it always boils down to flexibility and priorities. And I, I don't know, I've sort of learned a certain discipline. And I know, I'm trying to think of, of the best way to describe this. I guess at Wharton, when my first day, they have like the the executive coach gets up on stage and tells the story of like who makes it and who fails. Like the exec, it was the executive program. So everyone's working full time and everyone's going to business school. And he has all the horror stories of everyone who fails at the time. I have three kids and my youngest is six weeks old on my first day. And he gets up and tells the story of a woman who was the biggest disaster and almost failed out. And she was a working mom of three and how like the program was not set up for that type of person. And like he describes me and he says, if you know, I'm here to help you. His whole pitch was like, and so if you need help, don't get to that point where you almost fail out. Like this one woman come to me earlier in the process. So I went to him that day, first day, like, hi, I'm her three kids working full time in business school. What do I do? And he said, all right, we need to map your priorities. And I know that sounds silly and very cliche, But he was like, every day, this is what you need to think through. Number one is family. Number two is Wharton. And number three is your job. Like, those were the three things I was struggling. Family, business school, and work. And so he was like, if you only get to family today, that's what you got through. But every day you start with that. Just like, what are your top three? And that ended up being how I got through school. And it it sounds silly even saying it now, but right even how I balance things now like when we had to do that dietary switch that week that was my priority right I had to like research all new recipes I had to make a completely new grocery list I had to make a whole menu of like every meal every all day every day for everyone I had to experiment with it I had to get the kids to try new foods and eat them like and yes I worked in between of course but like that that was the overarching priority and just kind of had the discipline to to do that and power through. And because I'm an entrepreneur and because my job is like running around asking wealthy philanthropists to donate in a different way, they're all on vacation in the summer. They don't want to talk work anyway. So like when I was doing this food odyssey, it happened to be a slow time at work, which is why I chose to start it then, right? Like there are so many little decisions that I can make and have control over to do it. And so that sort of control, flexibility, and then prioritization. And and none of that sounds like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's more just practical. Well, the family first thing is, a, is an interesting one because everyone says that, but it's actually very hard to live. And I, I put myself in that category, right? There are many times where you can construe a narrative that like, well, I need to be distracted right now or working because if I don't do this, then this deal won't happen. And then my family, like I'm hurting my family. And and I know that I use that more often as a crutch slash cop out than like it's actually, than it actually being true, you know? Because it then, it gets into like 
deeper insecurities and anxieties and so on. You're like, oh, you know, when you're really anxious about something, you just like do more work, right? Which is, which, which I guess just hearing you say that is oftentimes is not the right answer, right? Like if you get really anxious about something, sometimes you should like go sleep, you know, or it's, it's interesting to live it. And, and just from how I, how I know you, I can say that like, I, I see you live it very vividly. I think it's, it's to me hearing you say that is like a challenge to myself to, cause I will say that, but I don't feel like I always live it. Well, I also think that, yes, it's hard. And I would say I'm not perfect. And it's like a dozen experiments that fail to get to one system that works and works for a short time frame, right? And then you keep tweaking. So it's not it's not perfect or stagnant. But and one thing I'd push back on that you were saying is I wouldn't assume that family first for me means they get all my time. And in fact, they get less of my time than my work does. But the time they get, it's all me. Like I'm not distracted. And so I've been, I'm, I know myself well to know for motherhood, for me, it's quality over quantity. Um, I can't spend all day at the park. And some people, some of my friends can and love it and more power to them. But like, I know me. And then I also know, like, I have had so many different schedules over the years, but I love seeing my kids before school and feet like filling their bellies with a warm meal and sending them off to school like with a hug and happy and a full belly and a good night's sleep and like so I now always even though my personal preference would be to like start work at 6 a.m I love to just wake up and dive in I as a mother I want those two hours in the morning so six to eight with them is every day they get me and they get like I don't have my phone with me you know but then eight to six or eight to seven, I'm at work. And that's more time than they, than the two hours they have with me. But when I'm with them, I'm with them. And so for me, family first doesn't always mean who gets the most time per se, but I do really try to be clear about where are my priorities? What do I want to accomplish? And then how am I building my schedule to allow for that? And then not letting the two like bleed over. And the the whole point about entrepreneurship is flexibility because, you know, it's like there's a broken narrative of entrepreneurship that like, you know, you have to be working investment banking hours and sleeping in the office and maybe for one kind of entrepreneurship. And that's that's the case, although I would argue that that's suspect. But entrepreneurship is such an open ended term that like. I'm a solo self-funded entrepreneur, right? And and many of the things that you're saying are, are super resonant. And then there's like someone that takes money from, you know, Peter Thiel or something. That's a different expectation of entrepreneurship. And, and then there's the kind you're doing. So there is like to just say entrepreneurship in like one broad stroke is like a huge, like does a huge disservice to that type of work. Absolutely. And I found I've been all three of those, like the funded by someone who is breathing down your neck versus self-fund, you know, all of those different stages. And I have still found, I mean, I even had like the Wharton people breathing down my neck, right? In business school, I was trying to do a bunch of this. And I've still found that you can maintain and people respect you more if you maintain control of your schedule. Like no one gets mad if you say from six to eight every morning and six to eight every night, I'm offline. And the rest of the time, sure, fair game. Some nights I work all night, some nights I don't. And I sleep 12 hours, right? <laughs> but like these four-hour blocks, no one's getting in, no matter who you are. And I've never had anyone question that, push back on that. If anything, like, oh, wow, you're really disciplined with your time. Great. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. Like you, when you say no to people, they're like, oh, you said no. <laughs> they're like, wow, cool. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, Lindsay, I am... Really speechless and and in awe of, of everything you stand for and you know how you choose to show up in, in, in the world and, and your values and I just could go on and on and, and I'll spare it for an email or something. But this has been amazing and thank you for for sharing your story with us. Thank you for having me. And before we go, I want to make sure where can people go learn more about what you're working on at NPX and, and I'll put all that in, in our show notes as well, like the links and stuff. 
Great. Yes. You can learn more at npxadvisors.com. And we are about to launch our first deal in the coming weeks, which we're super excited about. And so hopefully you'll be seeing more about us online and in the press as we transform how impact is financed in the nonprofit world. Awesome. All while not eating. You need to name that diet of yours. I know. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Lindsay. This was a real, real treat. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Rad Awakenings podcast. For more information on all things Rad, including our weekly email newsletter, please visit us at radreads.co. This podcast is a labor of love and funded by the community's generosity. And if you're interested in supporting us, please join us as a patron by visiting patreon.com slash radreads. And of course, leaving a five-star review always goes a long way. Thanks again, and until next time.